The sound and fury after the storm. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. Hi, I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and in Houston today. Uh, to catch up with President Biden a little bit later is Houston Chronicle political reporter Jeremy Wallace. Hello, sir. Oh, nice to be back on the road again. You know, yeah. you knew I was going to be playing Willie Nelson the whole trip. You know, yeah. on the road. Right. Yes, you've already made your Willie Nelson reference. You can just go home. You're there done. You go. The, the show is over, everybody. We'll see you next <laughs> week. No, all right. Um, you're in Houston, and let's start with that. The president will be on the ground there. Air Force One will be uh, wheels down uh, later today uh, in H-Town. And it's in response to the terrible disaster that we saw last week. Tragic doesn't begin to describe some of the scenarios that we have described um, in the Houston Chronicle, HoustonChronicle.com, uh, at QuorumReport.com, uh, and we've seen it all across the state. Um, President Biden has been in contact with Governor Greg Abbott, and a few days back he talked about some of their conversations. I had a chance to speak with the governor again uh, uh, last night, and uh, I asked him whether uh, he was about to ask for another uh, effort to, because the, the circumstances Texas finds itself in, whether he was going to seek additional assistance. And, uh, and we talked, uh, I talked with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, the administrator, uh, this afternoon. I'm going to ask him to accelerate our response to the request for, quote, it's a different declaration, a major disaster declaration. So there was some back and forth about that. Jeremy, what's on the itinerary this afternoon? What's going to happen when the president and first lady get there? Yeah, well, uh, once he you know touches down, it looks like he'll be going over to the uh, Houston uh, County, uh, yeah, the Harris County Emergency Operations Center, mm-hmm. uh, and get a tour of that, and you know talk to emergency responders, you know, at that location. He should have Governor Abbott with him, and you know, Senator John Cornyn are supposed to be there, as well as you know, Har- uh, Harris County Judge Lena Hildago mm-hmm. and Mayor Sylvester Turner, and you know several members of Congress as well. Uh, meanwhile, uh, First Lady Jill Biden is going to be over. At the Houston Food Bank, uh, getting a look at things, what's happening over there, and finally they'll wrap it up a little bit later on in the day. Uh, they're going to be talking about you know FEMA's response uh, to COVID nineteen, and they're probably going to be at the vaccination facility over mm-hmm. at NRG, and so you know, I'm expecting them to talk a little bit about the COVID response as well. So mm-hmm. uh, clearly, they made it sound like this was you know and mostly about you know trying to meet with emergency operations people on the ground and what you know happened in Texas and what the recovery looks like. Yeah, with all the disasters uh, around the country laid on top of each other, Texas is ground zero right now, and so the president wanted to be here on the ground in Houston. Uh, was there any talk about whether Texas voted for President Biden? Not a word of that. Not the way the point. last not the way the last administration would have talked about this. Remember when there were disasters in other states, President Trump would act like maybe federal uh, help would be withheld because those states didn't vote for him. Uh, you had tweeted earlier in the week that some top Republicans had praised President Biden for reaching out, uh, you know, in bipartisan fashion to try to work on a number of things, right, including uh, Senator Cornyn. 
Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, uh, Joe Biden invited uh, both John Cornyn and you know uh, U.S. Rep. Mike McCall over to the White House to talk about you know supply chains you know related to PPE and to semiconductor uh, conductors. Most of that stuff is now made in China, and they, they see a national security threat there. And so you know both McCall and Cornyn were just really you know effusive in their praise of just mm-hmm. being able to have that meeting and find some place of common ground. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I kept hearing them say, it, you know, this was very refreshing. I don't think they were saying refreshing compared to what we were having go on the last four years. Yeah. But you kind of kind of felt like that could have been mm-hmm. uh, kind of a part of the theme. You know, like, like, you know, not often would Trump have even invited those types of Republicans, you know, to you know, the White House. You know, at this case, this was a meeting full of Democrats, Republicans, Mm -hmm. some moderate Republicans, some conservative Republicans. It was like everybody just talking about an issue and how do we address it? Yeah, very different from what we saw with President Trump. Uh, You have uh, Cornyn, who's in Republican leadership in the Senate. One of I'm thinking of one of the uh, most famous pictures from the Trump era is the meeting with Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the Democrat, standing up at the table and pointing at President Trump while he kind of angrily looks back at her. The pictures this week out of the White House did not look anything like that. Now, on the response to the ice storm. In Texas, it is front and center at the legislature, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. Um, but the meetings this afternoon, could it be awkward at all? I checked with uh, Mayor Sylvester Turner's office just today to see if this was still the case. In Houston, the mayor and Governor Abbott have not spoken during the crisis. Um, last Friday, are, are they are they supposed to be at the same event? together this afternoon yeah. did you mention that yeah they're going to be in the same room at yeah. some point right. so in, it, including lena hildago and governor abbott there's right. another you know breach where we just haven't heard the governor mm-hmm. speak with either hildago or sylvester turner much at all over the last couple of years right turner was on msnbc last friday talking about things that local government is trying to do to assist people and listen to stephanie rule the news anchor on msnbc she was asking turner about Um, you know, the response locally and what the state is doing. And here's where the conversation goes. Is the state and the governor's office helping you do this? No, Uh, this is this is separate in part uh, from the state and the governor's office. In fact, I I have not talked to the governor uh, at any time during this crisis. Wait, not one time by last Friday or by today either? I am. I have not talked to the governor, um, but we are pushing forward. Um, we recognize that there are a lot of people uh, who are suffering. And just bear in mind, for those who have means, yes, they're inconvenienced and they're impacted. But for those who don't have means, for those who are on the lower level of our social economic strata, they are the ones who are being devastated by these conditions and the fact that the state did not produce enough generation Uh, to prevent a lot of these blackouts. We've seen this over and over again, Jeremy, where the state government is just very hostile to local governments. And this is a tone that has been set by the governor. And this has consequences in some of these uh, various crises. In in Texas, there's always something that's trying to kill you. I tell people it's like a hurricane or a wildfire. And now this uh, Arctic blast this polar vortex uh, that I don't think uh, folks here were necessarily expecting, uh, you know, a month ago, but it was forecast uh, well in advance of uh, the storm and with enough time for those who plan for disasters to be able to do more than they actually did. I think that that's fair. That is um, fair. Uh, when Governor Abbott first came into office, 
back in 2015 as governor. He was, of course, attorney general before that. But when he came into office, one of the first speeches that he gave is um, this uh, just very angry speech at local government at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, um, a, quote, conservative, close quote, group in Austin, uh, where Abbott essentially said that local government should not even be able to uh, have ordinance-making authority. Uh, Governor Abbott has said that um, local cities and counties shouldn't even be able to say whether you would have to prune your trees or not in it, on your property in your neighborhood, um, down to that level of micromanaging what local governments do. And you remember during the COVID-19 response, he asserted that local governments didn't have the right to make a lot of the decisions in response to the spread of the virus, right? That that was on his office to do that. So when you hear a national news anchor asking this question, how can it be that the governor hasn't talked to the mayor of the largest city? You have to tell these folks, Jeremy, this is not a new conflict between state and local government in Texas, right? Yeah, and you can feel there's a grinding nature between the relationship between Turner and Abbott, you know, right now. Uh, you get the sense that, uh, that when Abbott was on, I can't remember which TV program he was on, but on he ended up taking a shot at uh, Sylvester Turner out mm-hmm. of left field before he even got into the storm stuff. You know, and you're just like, okay, it was just, it was just kind of a, a weird kind of, you know, just taking a poke at him first and then getting into, you know, the crises at hand. And so it's like, it's just, it's kind of a weird thing that we've been seeing with them. Of course, we know the governor has proposed all these like legislative priorities in the Mm -hmm. past that go after cities. Like you said, the tree ordinances Mm -hmm. and, you know, how they annex property and, you know, property taxes, you you name it. Like he has made them a target, which he's doing again, this legislature by saying, okay, we're going to go after cities to manage how they manage their police budgets, make sure they don't cut them or they're putting enough in there. And so it's just, it's just a continued drumbeat of, you know, Greg Abbott clearly doesn't like mayors. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Sylvester Turner is a pretty outspoken, you know, and is more than willing to defend himself. Mm-hmm. And so you can see there's going to be a train, you know, wreck at some point where they, these guys are just going to go after each other. Yeah. Texas law for years made pretty clear that disaster management was the responsibility of the county judges in those counties, right? That they oversee the emergency operations and the way that the governor is now interacting with local governments, I think has real consequences for the way that these disasters unfold, right? When you ask people who's in charge of what's going on right now, you don't always have a quick ready answer. Everything seems kind of muddled. And that's been true on COVID. It was true in the ice storm, true uh, after Hurricane Harvey. I think it's um, it's indicative of this conflict that is ongoing. And it's part of Governor Abbott's philosophy is to be coming down hard on local governments in as many ways as possible. That's why I mentioned that speech at the Texas Public Policy Foundation years ago. Now, Governor Abbott did want everybody to know all across Texas that he's taking it very seriously and that he's taking specific steps after the ice storm last week. It killed people. It, it It's really an understatement to say that it um, inconvenienced folks. I mean, people were without power for days in sub freezing temperatures, completely unacceptable, and folks are very angry about it. Uh, The governor gave a quick speech, I think it was about less than 10 minutes, uh, just the other night, uh, and said that um, this is going to be fixed, that he's not happy, he's just as angry as everybody else is. Tragic does not even begin to describe the devastation and the suffering that you have endured over the past week. 
Abbott said neighbors were helping neighbors, which is the Texas spirit, and he added the state response is far from over. For those of you still hurting, I want you to know the state is using every possible resource to fix this problem. Many of you are angry, and you have a right to be. I'm angry, too. At a time when essential services were needed the most, the system broke. You deserve answers. You will get those answers. Now, there is a scapegoat, of course, and we told you last week it was the title of the show. It was the ice storm blame game, right? The governor has identified who he thinks is most responsible for what happened over the course of the week. The Electric Reliability Council of Texas, known as ERCOT, manages the flow of power in Texas. Before the storm hit, ERCOT repeatedly assured the state and the public that ERCOT was prepared. Those assurances turned out to be false. We now know that power generators of all sources were not prepared for this severe winter weather. We have also learned that ERCOT operators should have acted quicker to stabilize the grid and to prevent power generators from being knocked offline. Jeremy, you remember last week, you're old enough to recall (laughs) that I think last Tuesday is when it was, uh, Governor Abbott had specifically mentioned um, a couple of types of energy generation that were to blame, right? But you just heard him say that it was all forms of energy, right? It, this is yeah. a very different tune from what we heard last week. Yeah, it's like you can you can see that like this blaming, you know, different fuel sources. You know, it, 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 this is just going to be a theme that we mostly get. You know, it's like every now and then he'll go off on my, how wind you know, and solar to blame for this. But, Mm -hmm. you know, and, but when there's bigger audiences, like he's saying, look, he's acknowledging that everything has gone down. It, it's all about which audience he's speaking to right now. Uh, he is not going to point the finger at, you know, natural gas when he's talking to conservative outlets is what I've now pretty much decided. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. When he was on Fox news channel with Sean Hannity, he couldn't help himself. He had to talk about the green new deal being a deadly deal, but in this speech, and let's pull back a little bit here and explain that what the governor wanted to do with this was have as many television stations in Texas as possible. Take this speech live and put it out there for Texans. This is his message to everybody, not just the conservative base that would be watching Fox news channel, but instead Everybody who's watching TV everywhere in Dallas, Houston, uh, San Antonio, Austin, and every place in between. So listen to how he's talking about the different forms of energy and how all of them went down. The fact is, power generation from all sources buckled under the harsh, freezing winter weather. That includes natural gas, coal, nuclear as well as wind and solar. Each of these power sources failed to fully produce because of inadequate safeguards. That is why I have made it a legislative priority to mandate and to fund the winterization and stabilization of the Texas power infrastructure. This will protect our power grid from future winter weather events. 
how they do that specifically is going to be a legislative question. Um, yeah. the, the Texas Constitution says that you can't use tax dollars for private benefits. In, in other words, if they want to winterize all these uh, plants around the state, you know, the natural gas plants uh, and the wind turbines in West Texas and nuclear facilities and everything else, they can't just give them tax dollars to do that. Now, the policy wonks pointed out to me this week that what they could do is give tax credits to, you know, to these companies to be able to do that, which also has a benefit on uh, – or excuse me, has a, a consequence for revenues. Um, that's um, – that, that's a workaround, if you will. Yeah. They can they can get money to those companies to do this is, is the bottom line. Um, the thing that caught my attention in this speech, which a lot of it, Jeremy, was sort of rehashing things that he had said before, uh, you know, before he, he gave the speech. Um, but this part of it was a message to legislators that if you don't do what I'm asking you to do on the electric grid and get it fixed in the way that I want you to get it fixed, then there could be an immediate special session of the Texas legislature. No words can fix what happened or ease the pain that you have endured. But I assure you of this, this legislative session will not end until we fix these problems. Jeremy, nothing motivates Texas lawmakers like being forced to stay in Austin for overtime, right? Yeah. I, I, was, I was thinking about the fact that back in 2013, uh, there were three back-to-back-to-back immediate special sessions of the Texas legislature. This was when uh, Wendy Davis famously filibustered the uh, omnibus abortion bill. Uh, but the reason that they were called into special session was not abortion. This was Governor Perry at the time. And they were working out the kinks on, I'll just put it this way, this is the short version. They were trying to iron out uh, the final details of the previous redistricting because there had been some court challenges to the maps. And so Perry wanted the legislature to basically just sign off on the maps that the courts had approved and said were okay. Um, well, they couldn't do that. They couldn't just take those maps and do nothing. They couldn't just not hold hearings and give a chance for people to have input around the state. So what happened was the Texas House basically took a recess for two weeks and the Texas Senate started hearings on the maps. In the meantime, Governor Perry was going to run for president. So we needed to throw some red meat out there. So suddenly abortion was on the call uh, and he can add any topics that he likes to the special se uh, special session. And so he uh, added that. And with two weeks, they got into this uh, quick uh, drama about abortion, and uh, Wendy Davis filibustered the deal. Uh, and, of course, that went viral all around the, the country and the world. Uh, but that's how things can kind of spin out of control uh, when the governor's not maybe, maybe firmly in control of what's happening at the legislature. Um, won't surprise you to know that legislating can be messy. Um, you were listening to and I was listening to the hearings this week. Um, that went on for yesterday, went on for 15 hours. Yeah. If you started at 9 a.m., went all the way to past midnight in the Texas House. Um, and the board members at and the, the head of uh, ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, and the PUC, the Public Utility Commission, both were in the hot seat. I would say they were punished the most because they had to be there at 9 a.m. to testify. Yeah. Uh, and they were the last panel in the Texas House. Right. And they were they were lit up by Republicans and Democrats alike. Um, I want to get to that in just a second. But one thing about Abbott's speech, we've talked about this here on the show before. He has a real problem emoting and showing empathy for people. Right. It's, it's difficult for him to do. Um, and there was um, it's not a leak, but there was some video 
that came out that kind of proves that point. Uh, and I had tweeted this out, and it got a quarter million views online. Um, and what I had said about it was that this was the microphone check that he was doing. He was doing his mic check. And usually when I – by the way, Jeremy – I've done no less than a million mic checks in my life as a broadcaster. Usually it goes like this. Check. One, two, three, four. Check. Can you hear me? Sarah, is this working? <laughs> Sarah? Yes. Yes. Okay, it's working. That's how a microphone check should go. So this is uh, Governor Abbott's microphone check before he gave that speech. And what I had said about it was that he's doing the mic check, but he's also practicing his sincere voice, his sincerity. He's doing both. He's checking the mic and he's making sure – that the microphone will pick up his voice and broadcast it out to Texans such that they can hear when he's um, sort of scolding people and also when he's trying to show empathy. Listen. There will be occasions where I'll be talking about like this and some other occasions when I'll be talking like this. Is that good enough? <laughs> it was good enough. And it was – are you laughing, Sarah? It It's kind of funny, but the truth is and and, you know – it's Senator Cruz, who we're going to talk about in a little bit, he has talked about how the media is obsessed with optics, right? Um, but I don't agree with him on that. It's not that we're obsessed with optics. It's that a leader needs to be able to show that they are in the fight with you, that they are there uh, suffering as much as you are, that they are just as angry as you are. And we've seen it over and over again, Jeremy. We saw it during the COVID-19 uh, press conferences that the governor would have where he's trying to show empathy. And we've seen it after the ice storm where he's trying to show empathy. One of the press conferences last week, though, was it started off with him just reading the uh, weather forecast on his phone. And people were joking, why is he even doing this? I could get this information off the phone. I don't need him to do this. It's something that he really struggles with, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, uh, like this, all politicians, you know, you know, try to kind of navigate this, of course. And, mm -hmm. But like, what makes Greg Abbott a little bit differently? And I've talked about this before in the show. It's like, you know, he comes from a judicial kind of approach in politics, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like because he was a judge, you know, he has, you know, he, he has this dispassionate kind of way to interpret data and facts and then try to respond to it, you know, and that you know, serves him well in the courtroom. But you can see it's it's a different kind of world to like you know show emotion like to you know when he's angry or when he's yeah, really he upset when he's calling somebody mm -hmm. down like you know think of like a Ted Cruz you know Ted Cruz can go up and down mm -hmm. and like all over the place you know with his emotions you know and, and kind of convey it but like you know for Greg Abbott he's got like two speeds man <laughs> and he's trying <laughs> well, to work them out you know it's like and you can feel him like trying to figure out a way to like. Make sure he's sounding like right. You know, yeah. I don't. I'm not saying he's faking it. Right. But that's I, not the but point. He, but he's, but he's he has a real problem. It. Yeah, you're right. He has a real problem communicating that, and some of it is what they call emotional intelligence. Right. Like being able to relate to people is very, very difficult for him. So when I when I had tweeted that out, some people acted as if I was making fun of the guy. That's not it. The point is that, like you said. He's got two speeds, and that's what he needs the microphone to pick up, is that he only has those two speeds. He can talk about like this, and they can talk about like this. There you go. All right. Now, responding to that speech on behalf of the Democrats is – and I think the Democrats really like this guy, Jeremy, the uh, former Harris County clerk, Chris Hollins. I think they want him to run for Senate against Cruz or something statewide. 
they really they they put him out front on a lot of different things. Uh, Hollins, I saw him on the television uh, in Houston, and he was responding to what Abbott had said about ERCOT um, and all of that. And basically, Hollins says Abbott just wants to point fingers and not take any responsibility, uh, you know, on his own. What we saw is finger pointing, right? Blaming ERCOT, blaming these companies, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of blame to go around. But we all know that 10 years ago national figures came in and told us that we had these problems, predicted that in a cold weather situation that we would end up in the exact predicament that we were in this past week. And that was ignored, not only then, but in 2015, uh, when Democrats put forth and supported a bill that would have looked into and enforced this type of weatherization. Republicans opposed that nearly unanimously. And, and the governor uh, and others like Fled Cruz, Ted Cruz have done whatever they could to stand in the way of a loss of profits for the folks who put money in their pockets. Um, and that's that's a real problem. He called him Fled Cruz or he started to call him Fled Cruz. That was what they were. Uh, that's what some of the Democrats were calling Senator Cruz after he fled the state to go to Cancun. Uh, Hollins mentioned the storm in 2011 that did cause rolling outages all across the state. I would say, in fairness, it is not um, a situation with comparable storms at all. In 2011, we're basically talking about a one-day event that caused uh, rolling out, rolling blackouts across the state. Uh, and the numbers back it up, Jeremy. In 2011, the utilities were asked to offload about 4,000 megawatts. Now, you don't even need to know what that means necessarily as far as how many homes or anything like that uh, to, to do the comparison. There is no comparison. 4,000 megawatts was what they needed to make up in 2011. You know what the number was last week? Huge. Tw- tw- well, it was 20,000. It was 4,000 in 2011, 20,000 last week. So here's the comparison that I would make. You know when you go to the car dealership and you bought the package to be able to get uh, the oil and the oil filter included in maintenance, you know, every uh, every so often, uh, what is it, uh, 5,000 miles or so, you're supposed to get the oil changed. Um, and when you get the oil changed, sometimes you, you get about three or four or five into that, five oil changes in, or you get to about a year on that. And during one of your visits, the tech will come out to the waiting area and say, hey, we found this one part in the car that's having a problem and you need to fix this and it's going to cost you about 250 bucks or $300, something like that. And if you don't, they're warning you that if you don't fix that thing, which you haven't even noticed driving it, right? It's, it hasn't caused any problems for you yet. But the tech will tell you if you don't fix it, this is going to lead to bigger problems later and then you're going to end up with a bill that's more like $5,000 to fix your car so that it'll run. That's kind of what happened in 2011. We had sort of a blip with the system, and there's a problem there. And there, it wasn't just the feds who identified problems. And, of course, Hollins wants to make it a partisan thing and say that Democrats wanted to fix this. There was also a report from a GOP-led uh, state uh, committee, a, tex- a Texas House committee, that identified the problems as well, the $200 problems. The $200 problems were not fixed. And guess what we have this week? The $5,000 problem. I'm just relating it to your, your budget at home, right? And what does that do? So Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was asked about all this. He was on – not on Fox News, Jeremy. Yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was on uh, Good Morning America, 
and he was uh, on the show with T.J. Holmes, uh, who had some tough questions for Patrick. Uh, Patrick was talking about the fact that Texas is far from the only state to have had problems keeping the lights on. This should never happen. Uh, you know, you have power, power outages. I think you have some in the east now. You had many in California rolling brownouts. We've had our brownouts here. We've never had this experience before, and we've never had this cold before. But again, that's, you know, that's not uh, an acceptable answer. Well, we've never had this before. We should have been prepared. We believe we were be prepared. We were prepared, and, and uh, we, were not, uh, we were not given accurate information. I'll leave it at that for now, but we'll, we'll know once the investigation is complete. Now, you heard him mention uh, California and the anchor there, TJ, TJ Holmes. He was spring-loaded for that. He was ready to talk to Patrick about the fact that when California had blackouts last summer, that Patrick was critical of the Democratic leadership in that state. And, sir, I have to ask because you did mention California, and you were quick to mention California last summer in a tweet and saying that this is what happened when Democrats are in charge of your policy. You blame them for those blackouts, for those rolling blackouts. Do you blame Republicans now? Uh, You said you were part of the Senate back then. Well, you say you don't, but my question there is the Republicans have had a trifecta there in Texas for the past 20 years, the governor, the state house, and the state Senate. This has been a problem for a long time. Nothing has been done about it. Do you not apply the same responsibility to Republicans that you did to Democrats quickly? Well, well, TJ, TJ, it hasn't been a problem for a long time. It became a problem this week. Uh, We believe that, you know, we had not had a problem except for some rolling um, Sir, in 2011, in you were we warned by federal regulators. TJ, let me finish. I, I want TJ, to, but I have to stop you. That was incorrect. To say that this was only became no, no, a problem TJ. this week is not I'm, correct, TJ, sir. TJ, I didn't come on your show to argue with you, okay? No. Well, I sir, I'm not going to let answer. you tell TJ. my viewers something incorrect. That is not the case at all that this became a TJ. problem this week. In 2011, a bad storm TJ. happened. You were warned to be not to do this. You can hear Patrick there say, I didn't come on here to be lectured by you. Patrick went on to say that after 2011, we didn't have any more problems like this in Texas. We've had some brownouts here and there, but but nothing on the order of what we had last week, of course. And Patrick went to the extent of saying, you know, in 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, he listed them all so he can count. Uh, We didn't have any problems like this. Um, But again, back to the car analogy, there was an issue before Jeremy, that was identified by not just the feds. The Democrats want to make it a federal versus state thing, and I get why they want to do that. But it was also at the state level recognized by Republicans that there was a problem in 2011 that should have been fixed in the decade in between. Yeah, and then we're hearing in the testimony, you know, that it being brought before the House and the at Senate. The hearings, this yeah. week, mm-hmm. uh, we're hearing that there are you know, people in the energy sector. Who have been, you know, there has been a continually growing problem where each summer, even, you know, during our peak times, it's getting harder and harder to get all the electric generation kind of lined up right. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's been getting worse over the years, you know, as we've shifted our fuel sources, you know, there's clearly an issue there that, you know, it has been talked about. It has been being mentioned, Mm you know, like, you know, since 2011, for sure. Uh, but there have been other, you know, moments where, you know, in 2018, there was a, there was a apparently a cold, a cold enough, you know, spell where they were concerned about, you know, the fuel in the electric grid at that point too. Not to yeah. this extent, of course. Mm-hmm. But so to say that it, it hasn't been a problem since, it's clearly been an issue on the minds of the energy producers and the electric grid people, yeah. you know, who have been worried about this. Been driving around with bald tires and can't understand why we got in a wreck. 
Yeah. That's what's uh, that's part go. of what's going on. I mean, I can't stop with the car analogy, but it, it's true, right? I mean, you you have issues that don't necessarily cause a catastrophe immediately, but then you can see why you ended up having a big problem later on. Um, you mentioned the hearings that are happening, and the fact that we have had this um, sort of over the years drip, drip, drip of more problems with the electric grid, and that's identified by some of the power generators who are testifying at those hearings. Um, I would say that there are two main things that are happening that would cause that. One is the explosive growth of the state, uh, and this is always a problem with infrastructure. You have to plan for how many people you're going to have, not many how many people you do have, right? Um, and in Texas, we have a 1,000 people still moving to Texas every day. And that's been true even during the pandemic. That was borne out by the comptroller's numbers when he gave us his revenue estimates uh, back. He, he did a revised one six or seven months ago, and he did a new one in January. And you still have 1,000 to 1,200 people moving here every day. So that's one problem. Yeah. Then the other issue, which is a little more controversial, is climate change. We are seeing more super weather events, as they have been termed by some, um, and – this goes back a ways now. It's not new. I was thinking about the fact, Jeremy, that in 2005, Hurricanes Katrina and Rita reshaped the population of the Gulf Coast. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of people moving from Louisiana to Houston. They thought at the time, these evacuees, eventually a lot of them will just go back to Louisiana. There are people who still live here today uh, yeah. You know, after that. It was this mass migration forced by a giant hurricane coming at us from the Gulf of Mexico. Then you had, in 2008, not long after that, Hurricane Ike, right? Then you had, in 2017, you had um, Hurricane Harvey. Just de devastates the Gulf Coast. And we've talked extensively about the response to that. And then a few years later, we have this polar vortex. Something's going on with the climate. But, as you noted at HoustonChronicle.com, when this was mentioned during a Texas Senate hearing... The senator who brought it up was scolded for that by the chairman, right? Yeah, and it's like he barely got the words climate change. He was just asking, you know, as the climate changes, should we expect more of these storms? But before you can get the words climate change out of his mouth, it was like, hold on, hold on, <laughs> we're going too far here. Uh, and like and he was scolded by mm -hmm. uh, you know, State Senator uh, Kelly Hancock, yeah. who said, "Now we don't want to be chasing rabbits and all these different holes. We can go into all different." you know, directions and, you know, we could debate climate change some other day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but to, to decouple climate change completely from the conversation uh, seemed a little odd. <laughs> yeah. Don't talk about the problems we had in 2011. Don't talk about the overall climate picture when you're talking about a super weather event, right? Um, this is not uh, something where all Republicans agree. I saw yeah. Michael McCall, Republican congressman from Austin. Uh, his district runs from Austin to Houston. He was on CNN with uh, Dana Bash, and he said, look, these kinds of weather events will continue to get worse. And he's saying, look, climate change is real, which some in the Republican Party will say what McCall is saying, that it's real, but that we can't do anything about it, that, yeah. that humans don't really – have any say over that, that the, the earth is too big for us, you know, in the grand scheme for us to have any impact on what the climate is. Um, others will say that we do need to have some sort of a response because we're absolutely contributing to what the earth is going through. And it is a paradox, right? Here you have Texas, the probably the energy capital of the world, right. I would say, uh, Houston and, and Texas in general. 
we have more energy in this state than any other state in the United States, and arguably more than any in, in the world. And yet here we are without energy. How does that make sense? And we can blame it on wind and solar, but that's about 25% of the grid. Uh, 75% is is uh, natural gas and coal. They were all frozen in their operations. So this winterization idea that I talked about mm-hmm. that was set forth in the 2011 report is something that I believe we need to uh, strongly move forward and make the investment that they failed to do in the past. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to make that investment now. All right. So, I mean, 2011 was was 10 years ago um, on that. Yep. Experts are saying that what we're seeing in Texas uh, and the state infrastructure system that you were talking about, which is so overwhelmed, is just a preview of what to expect if uh, the United States doesn't confront the climate crisis head on. I know you're, you're someone who acknowledges <clears throat> that climate is changing, that humans are playing a role does this experience show you that the climate crisis poses a real threat to Texas and the world? Well, I managed the Paris Accord on the floor last year. You know, I think I surprised some of my colleagues across the aisle when I said I'm not saying it's not happening. I think I think it's real. I think the question is how to deal with it. And I think innovation, technology, a Manhattan type uh, project uh, to deal with uh, clean energy is a way to go. I think these micro nuclear devices, which I've had a lot of conversations with my state counterparts uh-huh. about we have one nuclear facility in Texas. Why aren't we bringing in these micro nuclear devices that can produce a ton of energy with zero carbon emissions? You know, ideas like that that we right. can put forward. He's talking about the kinds of things that business is already working on, the, the micro nuclear yep. technology and the fact that you do have uh, large energy companies that already have vast holdings in renewable energy, right? They're moving in that direction because those are energy companies, right? They're not oil, not, not, not just oil and gas companies, even though that's what they sell right now. Um, an energy company, in some ways, is a cartel, right? The, uh, if you think about OPEC, they call themselves a cartel. What a cartel does is take something where it is and get it to where people need it. Right. So when the so when the um, uh, the drug cartels bringing drugs out of Mexico, you know, the routes that they use are the same routes that were used to smuggle cotton during the Civil War to bring in the kind of things that and, and other supplies that the folks uh, in the South needed uh, to have to keep the war going. It's a, the cartel just brings you what what you need. Right. H.E.B. is a cartel. Right. It's it's and that's not a bad thing. It's that they get what you need from where it is to where it's going to be. You think about the kinds of progress that business is making on this and the fact that insurance companies, the, the actuaries, they, they build it into their uh, actuarial tables now that climate change is happening and that certain kind of damage is going to happen in certain parts of the country and certain parts of the world, right? And so the fact is um, that business is moving forward on this. And Jeremy, often on these kinds of issues that have become sort of partisan hot buttons like climate change, the politics will follow business eventually. A lot of times business leads on those things. Yeah, you can see it, you know, the free market, you know, type of concept is what's making those utility companies say, hey, you know what, maybe investing in solar and wind isn't a bad idea, because it is cheap power uh, that only helps them save money, right? So you can see that, you know, as they go in those directions, I'm assuming that, you know, you know, the political parties will take note of that and start dovetailing a little bit more. You already hear it some mm-hmm. in, you know, even in these hearings that we've been, you know, hearing in the uh, Texas House and Texas Senate, uh, 
you hear a lot of Republicans talking about how, you know, they do like wind. You know, wind energy has had a huge benefit in lowering people's bills here. Without wind power, uh, our bills would probably be higher for electric, you know, electric costs, right? And so there certainly has been a benefit. And you hear Republicans, you know, of course, there's some criticism of wind and how it operates and, you know, how reliable it is and things like that. But they do love the dollar value of it and the private enterprise part of it. Yeah. Do you think Senator Cruz is ever going to stop talking about his trip to Cancun during the freeze? Yeah. I, why doesn't he just stop? <laughs> He'll stop talking about it uh, at some point, I guess. But I would say this. We'll stop when he stops. Okay. Um, he was in Orlando this morning. Another warm climate. He was in Orlando for CPAC. That's the Conservative Political Action Conference. And yep. here's the first thing he said in his speech as he was talking to uh, Republican activists there. I got to say, Orlando is awesome. It's not as nice as Cancun. <laughs> it, why, why bring this up again? It, it is so under his skin that people are mad about this. And I guess he wants to own the libs because it, it could only be liberals who are upset with the fact that he left the state when it was in the midst of a crisis no, that's not true at all. Lots of people were angry at Ted Cruz who are not liberal at all. I heard from a lot of conservatives and a lot of people. In fact, after the show last week, Jeremy, I heard from more people who said that they were previously Ted Cruz fans and that did it for them, that they were they were they were done with him after that. Now, they may they may change their mind about that. It's you know, this is all in the moment. But uh, Cruz has been on a, not really a speaking tour, but doing a lot of interviews about this. He's trying to explain himself. And when you're explaining you're losing. He was on a podcast called The Ruthless Podcast, which were you aware of that one? No, I, I don't know, know that one. It's not the Texas Take, so I, I hadn't heard it. Yeah, um, what's he, the point? Yeah, what, what's the point of that? <laughs> um, he was on The Ruthless Podcast. And you remember what I said to you last week about avoiding those group text messages, you know, staying away from those? It's yep. a good thing that you're not on them because group text messages about the Cruz's planning their trip ended up in the newspaper. And Cruz was very angry about that. And he said that his wife, Heidi Cruz, was also just fit to be tied that their private text conversations ended up reported in the media. Yeah, I will say Heidi's pretty pissed at that. She actually was over to a neighbor's house yesterday, sort of walking through. So she texted several of our neighbors. Now, look, our neighbors... We've got a number of Republicans who are neighbors, but we also have a number of Democrats. Right. And so, you know, with folks on our street who put up Beto signs, which I thought was a little, That's a, little uh, a little rude. Here's a suggestion. Just don't be assholes. Yeah, like, right. like, just, you know, treat each other as human beings, have, have some degree, some modicum of respect. I'm quoting the senator. You don't be assholes. Jeremy, he said that with no sense of irony. A lot of people who have that opinion of Ted Cruz, of course, including, as evidenced by the fact that the text messages came out, that includes his neighbors, right? And that includes some of the parents at the private school where the Cruises send their kids. And what I had seen, based on some of the reporting, was that – and this is the private school moms, man. Don't mess with the private school moms. So apparently one of the reasons that one of the uh, mothers there at the school doesn't like the Cruises is that – one of their daughters got on a dance team that the other mom's daughter did not get on. All right. So that you never, there's a reason you call them blind spots. You don't know, you know, exactly where 
specific problems are going to emerge for you. Try. I think the senator had some good advice there. Try being nice to people like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was nice to people in Texas. And this is how long this week and last week were, Jeremy. When I was looking for um, coverage about this, it occurred to me – this was just a few days ago that AOC yeah. was in Houston. It feels like a year ago. She was there because she raised how much? What was the final uh, number? Five million? Yeah, she's now over $5 million raised for food banks and homeless uh, advocacy programs. Now, while Cruz is trying to explain why he wasn't in Texas helping Texans at the time, AOC was explaining in Houston why she, as somebody from New York, would be helping people from here. When disaster strikes, this is not just an issue for Texans. This is an issue for our entire country. And our whole country needs to come and rally together behind the needs of Texans all across the state. And I heard from some Republicans, including uh, Senator John Cornyn, who said, look, uh, political arguments can come later. Texans appreciate the help. And I would say that um, acting like an asshole ends up uh, with you explaining that other people should not be assholes. That's it. Maybe more of the setting political differences aside is what's necessary in crises. This takes us right back to the beginning of the show, Jeremy, where the uh, governor feuding with local governments and that spills over into the crisis response. It's just not productive. There are certain times when people should set all this stuff aside and just ask this question. What can I do to help? Right. Well, yeah, and, and it's nice that, you know, like when Biden comes in today into Houston, the thing that he's doing and he's meeting with Governor Greg Abbott and Senator John Cornyn, both Republicans, along with the Democratic mayor and the Democratic county judge. So you can see, like, you know, in a time of crisis, let's just, you know, work together mm-hmm. a little bit, that- you know, and then, then we can go fight each other about, you know, minimum wage hikes mm-hmm. and things like that other, elsewhere. But during a crisis, you just kind of hope everybody puts their, you know, team jersey to the side and just kind of work all together. Yeah, it's definitely an unfortunate uh, development that this seems to have uh, shifted in a very real way. We'll continue to track uh, the response to the ice storm uh, moving forward in the legislature. I think they're going to have a lot more to say about it uh, in the weeks and months to come. That's enough show for today. I know you've got to go do reporting uh, on, you'll be in the presidential bubble. And just to explain to people, that means you, we won't see you the rest of the day. Your coverage, <laughs> your coverage will be at HoustonChronicle.com. But uh, Jeremy is being, uh, you know, sucked into the presidential bubble. It means that uh, we won't be able to text with them or call him or anything. He'll be in there just covering the president for a but few. I'll be tweeting like crazy. Okay, so right. Follow my Twitter feed at, like usual. At Jeremy S. Wallace, you can follow along. If you enjoyed this show, you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. Jeremy's work is right there at HoustonChronicle.com. And for up-to-the-minute intelligence on what's happening in your state government, go to QuorumReport.com, click subscriptions. More important than ever during a legislative session, QuorumReport.com. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.